Well, we are about to embark upon a new series in the book of Hebrews. And if you haven't started reading through it yet, I want to challenge you to spend your quiet times in the book of Hebrews uh, this week and in coming weeks. And if you will take just two chapters a day this week, by Sunday, you will have read the entire book and uh, we'll be able to study it together. But as I was preparing and studying the book, which is just, it's outstanding. It is so rich. Uh, I was noticing just how the book is just chock full of Old Testament references. And we, we love our Old Testament narratives here at Metro Bible, right? And uh, it's just replete with, with uh, you know, texts from the Old Testament, one after another after another. And the author uses it to explain the superiority of Christ to a group of Jewish Christians who are tempted to walk away from the faith and go back to Judaism. And so it's interesting how the author uses the Old Testament scriptures, that which they revered, even though they now claim to be believers, and he treats them that way. And he says, but, but don't go back because Christ is the very fulfillment of those scriptures. And so as I was preparing for the book of Hebrews, I thought before we get into this new book, we might get a glimpse of another time where Jesus does something quite similar, where he explains himself in the Old Testament. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to get into this narrative today and have it be a taste of what is to come. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, as we come before you as a body of believers, we lift our voices and our hearts towards heaven, and we ask you to bless our time. We ask that your Holy Spirit would superintend this uh, next moment of the ministry of your word, that it might pierce our hearts that you might illumine our minds to understand the scriptures and that your son would be exalted among us. That our response would be one of worship. All that we are responding to all that we know of him. And Lord, as we pray that for ourselves, for this local body of believers this morning, for strength, for understanding, for comprehension, for spiritual growth, that which you promise us in your word, Lord, we also want to pray it for other churches out there, other churches who are encountering persecution in difficult times. Father, specifically this morning, we want to lift up to you Grace Community Church in Los Angeles under the direction of Pastor John MacArthur. The court struck down a previous ruling and has now banned them from meeting. And yet, Lord, it is not the state that grants us the privilege to worship. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. For the Redeemer is also the Creator. And the rights with which we are endowed as His creation is also the responsibility to worship Him regardless of what the state says. And so I pray that you would be with Pastor MacArthur this morning. I pray that you would be with the congregation, that they would not be despondent, they would not be fearful, 
that, that they would sing all the more loudly, that they would listen all the more intently. And Father, we also pray for Antioch Bible Church in Johannesburg, South Africa. I spoke with Tim Cantrell yesterday, and they too are encountering persecution where they are only allowed 50 people in a service. They are not allowed to sing. They must wear face masks. They are beholden to the state, but yet he is doing the right thing and he is leading his congregation to understand that it is not the role nor the place of the government of South Africa to restrict this. And so they read a statement to their congregation this morning saying that they are choosing to obey God rather than man. We pray for other churches around this country, Lord. We pray that they would no longer hide, that they would no longer be fearful, but they would gather and they would worship the one true and living God. Give pastors and elders boldness to lead their congregation. I pray that you would continue to give us boldness and that it is this boldness that we believe in what we see in Scripture that will attract unbelievers to the Word of God and through this faith. Father, may we hear it, may we see it in your Word this morning where Christ takes the Old Testament Scriptures and He exposes them, explodes them to these disciples. And they see this wonderful panorama, how the Old Testament testifies to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts, Lord, this morning, Lord. Make us excited about your word that we may truly be more evangelistic, have a greater love for the lost, and do that that someone did for us. Share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, what's interesting about this text this morning that makes it so enjoyable is that this is a wonderful picture of how the gospel is both presented and how it takes root and changes the hearts of men and women. Right on the heels of Christ's resurrection, we get to see our Lord Jesus Christ not only engage people relationally, but share with them the truth from Scripture. And we get to see how it takes root, how it changes hearts and lives. I want us to think of this text today as a play. I mean, a really enjoyable play with five different acts. And this play is going to be a picture in live action of the gospel. Let's dive right in. Act one, the dashed expectations. Watch how this scene opens in verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, we're all familiar with this story. If you're like me, I've often thought of it as, as two men, two disciples, right? So I just automatically goes to uh, this parallel that well, we have the 12 apostles, we have lots of disciples that follow Christ. When it mentions disciples, surely this is just two men walking. But I think 
This actually may be a married couple. Let me explain why. Followers of Christ are not called Christians until Antioch. So anyone who was following Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was called a disciple. Secondly, seven miles from Jerusalem, even during the Passover, would be a long way away to get an Airbnb for the festival. So they're traveling back what looks like to be either their home or a family's home. We also know that the Jews would never stay in inns. And so this couple is going back to at least a family home. And we're going to see that they're going to invite Christ in for a meal. So it appears that they may live there. We don't know, but you might think about it that way. Don't, don't just always go with traditions. This may very well be a married couple. Now watch what happens. It says in verse 14 that they were talking with each other about all these things. I want you to circle that phrase, all these things. All these things is the crux of the text. What their understanding of these things is going to make the difference. In fact, how we understand these things will dramatically affect everything we do. Because these things are explained as why did the Christ have to die? It's the gospel. They're wrestling with dashed expectations. This is not how it was supposed to be. Surely this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, surely he was the long-awaited Messiah. Messiah and Christ are, are both the same word. Messiah would be Amashiach, that's from the Aramaic, from the Hebrew, and, and Christos, it's, it's the counterpart in Greek. So surely he was the long-expected one, the son of David, the one who would restore Israel. And they're wrestling with these dashed expectations. And so we see lots of walking and talking. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So apparently the resurrected Christ begins to keep pace with them. He hears them talking about these things. He speeds up a little bit. He listens on, and then he begins to engage them. Now, we know from Mark's account that he actually appeared in a different form. And so he makes sure that they don't recognize him. Verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? What are you guys talking about? I haven't heard this. What are these things? What are you guys so upset about? And it says they stood still, looking sad. Literally, they, they stopped dead in their tracks. Their faces are downcast. And look what Cleopas says in verse 18. Are you the, what? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? Don't, don't, don't you read the news? The, 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 it was in the kosher report this morning. Don't you watch JerusalemNews.com? Everyone knows about this. Everyone's talking about this. Jerusalem is not a big place. We're all here for the festival. How can you not know? What planet are you from, we might say? 
I love his response in verse 19. What things? And he makes no excuses. He didn't even fake it. Well, well, no, I don't know. Have I missed something? And they said to him, verse 19, these things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. They're defeated. They're going home. We might describe it this way. As they walk back to their hometown, they're saying, I'm done. I guess I was duped. Messiahs aren't supposed to die. And certainly not at the hands of their own religious authorities. These guys are confused. We've seen this before, haven't we? What did Peter say? I'm going fishing. I'm done. I guess he was just a, a good prophet, and, and everyone knows what happens to a good prophet. Our leaders kill them. I mean, you just read the Old Testament. I guess he wasn't really, really a Messiah. But verse 21, but that we were hoping. We were hoping, we were hoping that, that he, dot, dot, dot. What were they hoping? They were hoping he was going to redeem Israel, it says, verse 21. Do you know how many people claim to be the Messiah during this period? Sixty people. During this period, a few decades, 60 people rose up, gathered a following, and claimed to be the long-awaited son of David, the Messiah. I guess he was just a prophet. I was, I was hoping, I was hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Now, what do they mean by redeem Israel in their minds? Redeem Israel from their sins? I mean, that's what we kind of hope, right? But, but what is it? No, redeem Israel from Rome. They wanted a political ruler. Besides, it's, it's the third day. Now, that's a very interesting point there. Besides, it's the third day. These guys were close enough to Christ and to the apostles that they knew what he had said in Luke 9.22, that he would suffer be rejected by the leaders and be killed and rise again the third day. And so if there was any hope or any truth in what he was saying, we still haven't seen him. So we're going home. And then there's this glimmer of hope there. But something doesn't make sense. There's some doubt. Even in their despondency, there's some doubt. There's some hope. It says that there was some women among us in verse 22. And when they went to the tomb early in the morning, they didn't find his body. 
And they, they said that they had, had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. But, but I mean, these were just, just women, right? You know how Jewish men would think of women. I mean, just women. They have vivid imaginations. Perhaps it was the wrong tomb. I mean, perhaps they just wanted it to be. Perhaps they're just emotional. But in verse 24, there's, there's validity given to it. But some of those who are with us, well, they went to the tomb and guess what? They found that it was exactly like they said. It was, it was empty. Our friends confirmed it. But it still doesn't make sense. So we're just going home. We're done. Our hearts can't handle this. So the curtain falls on this first act. And, and you're, you're left wondering, what is the resurrected Christ doing, engaging with these disciples? What is he going to say to them? Because we, as the readership, we can see what's going on. We've seen the resurrection. We've seen the appearance of the angel to the women. We know what's going on, but they don't. Christ has this here for a purpose. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had Dr. Luke include this account. Mark touches on it, but, but Luke gives us a real, clear, elongated picture. And there's a reason. Look at our second act. The curtain rises, and it rises with a bang. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, I probably need to say that another way, because... I, 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 I can't imagine. They've just explained to them, to, to Christ, how their, their expectations were dashed, how apparently he was not the Messiah. They are disturbed and grieved. Christ hasn't said a word yet, and yet he turns to them and he just exclaims this. You foolish people. What is it going to take for you to believe What's in the Bible? That's what it sounds like. We might, we might be as direct as this. Come on, guys. You're missing it, and it's right before your eyes. Don't you know your Bible? Didn't you go to Sunday school? How could you have missed this? So there's a little bit of an edge to it, right? They rebuked him for not knowing what's going on. Now he rebukes them for not knowing their Bibles. And we're meant to lean forward here a little bit. Don't miss this word, all. To believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You see, we see two pictures of the Messiah in the Old Testament, don't we? We see a conquering king and a suffering servant. And they had chosen to focus on the conquering king, right? They, they, they didn't notice so much the passages on the suffering servant. It didn't meet their expectations. 
And so in this divine explanation, Christ is going to explain himself that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Now watch the gospel come alive in verse 26. So don't you know your Bibles? Don't you know it's in there? Verse 26, was it not very specifically necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? He cuts right to the chase. You guys are messed up because your Messiah was not supposed to die and certainly not die a criminal's death at the hands of the religious authorities. And he says, don't you know your Bibles? Was it not necessary? So he pushes back. But let's be honest. This is hard. I don't think we would have seen this in the Old Testament. Certainly we know that even the prophets struggled with it. Peter in his first letter says, quote, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to, make, to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even the prophets are writing things that they don't quite fully understand. And yet David knows when he writes that there's there's references, that there's pictures of the Christ to come. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Do you see both those things are there? Those things repeated by Peter. And of course, we know the theology behind this. We're able to look back and see the fulfillment that it was necessary because the blood of bulls and goats would not do, right? I mean, if you were a good Jew, every year you were showing up on the Day of Atonement to have your sins atoned for, and yet you'd have to come back next year, and they'd have to, they'd have to kill another animal. It was just a picture, a shadowy reflection of the things to come. But as a result of the fall... I'm going to do a little ontology here. As a result of the fall, Adam's fall, we sinned all. That we all have a sin nature, right? We're not as thoroughly bad as we could be, and yet prior to coming to Christ, everything we do is to serve self. Self is on the throne. But we can't just blame it on Adam because it's not just as a result of the fall, but we too have chosen to sin. And Scripture makes it clear that anything short of the perfection of our holy, perfect, sovereign God will not be able to have communion with Him. And the wages of sin is death. And so there was a sacrifice that was needed. And it couldn't be any sacrifice. And yet it couldn't be any man. It had to be a perfect man. So Christ said, I will go. And he sunk himself into human flesh, being fully God, fully man, lived the perfect life that we could not live, set his chin like a flint to the cross, and on that cross, watch this, absorbed the just wrath of God. Justice was served. We earned the penalty, and yet he paid it for us. That's the justice. That's the sufferings of Christ 
And then guess what? Mercy was extended. Mercy flowed forth from the cross. He not only says not guilty, but those who repent and believe, he invites into and adopts us as sons and daughters of the king. And all he requires from us is to repent of our sin to place our faith and trust in him. No good works will do. No traditions, no mass. Baptism doesn't save you. It is finished. Was it necessary? Absolutely it was necessary. Anything less does not bring us into communion with God. Now, I just explained it to you theologically. But that was a pale reflection of what Christ did. Look at verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You know, I love to listen to good sermons. Some of my favorite guys to watch. I'll get on YouTube. But honestly, if I could choose any sermon, this would be it. This was the greatest sermon never recorded. Never even written down. Can you imagine what this is like? The sermon preached by the author. You guys got a minute, he says. Let me teach you your Bible. And beginning with Genesis. Through all of the Old Testament, Second Chronicles, which is the end of the Jewish Bible. All 39 books. He walks them through. And he explains himself. Remember way back in Genesis when Adam sinned and the serpent was cursed? There was a prophecy about how he would bruise the heel of the seed of woman, but that a death blow would be dealt to him. That death blow was last Friday on the cross. That death blow was when Jesus said, It is finished. That was the Messiah, and it was necessary for him to suffer these things. And oh, by the way, remember Joseph? How he was sold into slavery, thought dead, went to the land of the Gentiles, married a Gentile bride, and saved a nation from starvation and famine. That was a picture of the Christ. And he goes through one book after another, after another. That was a picture. Hey, and remember Daniel? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they would not bow the knee and they were thrown into the fire. But there wasn't just three. There was a fourth one. And the fourth one was like the son of what? God. He said, that was your Jesus. And he's explaining all this to him. Remember when the captain of the host appears to Joshua, that was your Messiah. And he goes through the law and the historical books and poetry and prophets and the minor prophets. And he explains himself over and over again. And I imagine he told the story of Ruth and a kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And he said, and that was a picture of the Messiah. 
And if you guys didn't pick up on it, we just celebrated what? The Passover. The matzah, the unleavened bread. Your Messiah was without sin. And he was broken. And the third cup. Hey, guys, you remember what the third cup is? It's the cup of redemption. Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilled that. He drank that cup to its bitter dregs. And the fourth cup, we will drink with him one day, the cup of hope. That was a picture of the perfect lamb shedding his blood for you. That was the Messiah. And I imagine this couple's mind was blown seeing the scriptures just come off the page. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That word, word of God there in Hebrews, which we're going to study, it's the spoken word of God. And we had God, a very God, speaking the word of God. And it's going to make the people of God. I was thinking about this and I thought, wow. And if someone were to ask me a few years ago, what do you think the gospel is? I'd say, well, it's the four spiritual laws, <laughs> which is true. OK, but that's kind of like describing a Rembrandt by one inch on the corner where it's all dark and black. Christ has given a picture of the gospel, the story of redemption. And the entire word of God testifies to God's redemptive act, either in anticipation or explanation. Anticipation in the Old Testament, explanation in the Gospels, manifestation in Acts, explanation in the epistles, and consummation in Revelation. I bet they don't know what to think of this guy. How would they miss this in their Bibles? They grew up in the synagogue. They had their bar mitzvahs, right? And yet, what he was telling them was, was otherworldly. It was a divine explanation. Act 3, verse 28. And as they approached the village where they were going, he acted as though he were going further. Hey, appreciate the conversation, guys. Thanks. We'll, uh, we'll see you some other time. Lord bless you. You, you know, kind of like when you're on a plane and you sit next to someone, you have this great conversation. It's, it's really enriching, makes your day. But honestly, when you get off the plane, you don't, you don't even remember their name. You don't think about them. You never keep in touch with them. If they grab hold of him, they say, whoa, whoa, hold, hold on. Hey, what's your hurry? Take a load off. Stay a while. It's getting late. Come on in. Like good Jews, they invite him in for hospitality, but I think they want to hear more. Stay with us. And so he agrees. Now watch verse 30. They're having dinner. And it says, when he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Now, there's something interesting. You know, they're not sitting in chairs. They're not eating at a table, okay? They would eat by resting on their left elbow and reclining. So they're all sitting there talking, and I'm sure 
kind of just snacking and eating a little bit. And then Christ does something that is, is very unusual because this is not his home. He plays the host. He takes the bread and blesses it. That's not his place. He breaks the bread and begins giving it to them. Now, you know that he's already spent time explaining the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And you know on that, that walk, that conversation, he was explaining the Passover. And so can you imagine when he takes the matzah, blesses it, breaks it, and extends his hand out? And I imagine that his sleeves raise up a little bit. And what do they see? They see the holes where the nine-inch nails went through. They realize, they realize who this is. Act 4, it says, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And this is a picture of what happens when all of us come to Christ. The Spirit of God opens our eyes and we recognize him. Like the Jews will one day, we look upon whom we pierced. We realize our own sin and depravity. And we realize that he was the one that died in our place. And we were the ones who nailed him to the cross. And their eyes were opened. You know, in Acts 16, when Paul is going from city to city and he goes to Europe and he goes to Philippi and there's not a place to worship there. There's not, not even a synagogue. And he goes down by the river where he heard that people would gather to worship. And there was a woman there named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a wealthy woman. And it says she's listening to Paul. And we see this phrase where it says, and the Lord opened her heart to understand the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opens their eyes and they recognize him. And then he vanishes, verse 31. He disappears. Now look at verse 32. They turn to one another were our hearts not burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You know, it's almost like they're saying, did you have the same experience I did? For the last three hours when he's been walking us through the Bible, my heart was burning within me. I wanted it to be true so badly and I was convinced but it wasn't until now that I realized that Jesus is the Messiah and he is no longer in that grave and he was with us and we were with him. Now watch what happens and watch what they do with this information. Act 5. If Act 4 was the cardiac regeneration, Act 5 is the desperate evangelization. Verse 33, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. 
and found gathered the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has what? Really risen. I love that. It really is true. It's really risen and has appeared to Simon. Do you realize they backtracked seven miles in the dark? All the way in verse 35 and says that they were relating their experiences on the road to people. <laughs> you got to hear what happened to me. What are you doing in the dark? Why, why are you going back? I'm going back to Jerusalem. We've got some news. I got to tell you about my day. And you know, in Genesis where it says that, and you know, in Joshua where this happens, and we all know the book of Ruth and he starts going through it and they're just repeating this stuff. They give a testimony how they were blind and their eyes were opened. I was blind, but now I see. And this text tells us that the Old Testament bears witness that Christ had to suffer and die and enter into his glory. But it's wrapped in the picture of how the gospel goes forth how people have a conversation, build a relationship, share the word of God. And our God uses his word to open eyes. I want you to think about a couple of things as we leave here. God seeks us and meets us where we are on the road to destruction. Our hopes and dreams are fruitless. Most of the time we lived with dashed expectations. If we wanted God at all prior to conversion, it was on our terms and in our image. When we hear the word of God, it pierces our hearts. We realize how we have rebelled against our creator as his creation. We recognize who he is and what he has done on the cross, dying in our place, satisfying the wrath of God so that the mercy can be extended. And we respond in belief. God opens our eyes. We are brought into fellowship and we find ourselves dining with the king. But it doesn't stay there because we rush out to tell others what happened and where the meal is. <laughs> 